0: the cat hates it when i reach over to uh touch buttons on the screen i need to have a remote so that i don't have to disturb the cat but um, I, I would i would have thought by now that there would be a uh uh zoom remote maybe i just haven't found it yet but anyway um, so sometime last year i gave a talk about the 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 kind of two truths of doctrine and i I figured it's probably a good idea to review a little bit of that material and then develop it in a slightly different way (laughs) oddly enough largely because my whole um view of that material has changed like pretty radically in the last year Um, so so you know why not right so the the idea that there's different ways of looking at reality has been around since w- probably well before Buddhism. But um, certainly even in early Buddhism, um, one of the ways you can see this is if you look at the notion of the jhanas, right? So there are these. Um, in the in the pretty early Canon, there are these, um, what's the word? Like mental states that are singled out um, and 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 pointed out as uh, as kind of markers in the progress of practice, right? And and typically the way they're formulated is that um, uh, there's there are some of them that are in the, that are, that play out in the realm of the senses, right? Um, and in kind of the realm of form, they're, they're called the rupa jhanas, which I think where rupa in that context just means things. Um, and so they're the dharma, the, the jhana of things. And then there are other, there are other jhanas that aren't, that aren't concerned with the, with the realm of things. And the, the, the general, um, kind of flavor of the discussion is that those jhanas are, are more, or are, are either more true, or at least have a different kind of truth to them because they they play out in a different realm, right? um And and there's also a, there's a bunch of material in the Pali Canon, the, the texts of early Buddhism about how there's the, some talks are. Are straightforward and practical, and some talks are are metaphorical and indirect, right? And and uh, it's important to distinguish between the uh, talks that are straightforward and practical and the talks that are indirect. And the Buddha says, if somebody hears a straightforward talk and they think it's indirect, they're wrong. And if somebody hears <laughs> a uh, an indirect talk and they think it's straightforward and practical, they're wrong. Right? Which is which is kind of great, right? Um, but that whole, that whole idea developed during the course of, um, the, the history as Buddhism moved from being largely a, um, a pursuit of, you know, kind of community of wandering mendicants into something else I mean there were still obviously wandering Buddhist mendicants but they also Buddhism also took on a, um, a kind of kind of an academic flavor um, uh, there were a lot of um, there was academic in a lot of the same ways that um, that ancient Greece was academic right? the idea is that there were these community some sometimes very large communities of, of monks that would get together and study the Dharma and, and develop philosophical systems and debate them and and they were in Buddhist schools developed 20 or so Buddhist schools developed early on and and uh, and, and interpreted both the the original teachings and the the later commentaries on them in different ways, right? So, um, so it kind of went on like that, and there was a while where the where the most um, the most widely attested, popular school of Buddhism had this way of understanding. The world and human experience, and so on, um, and in particular, a way of understanding the arising of suffering that that famously is called the uh, five skandhas. Right, so um, the, the the five skandhas are um, form. Um, Sensation, perception, mental formation, and consciousness—that's one way of translating what they're called. Right? And and there and as an analytical system, it's used to kind of tease apart the components of the of the human experience. And there are some other there are some other underlying components, like for example, memory, um, that that are talked about in the in this doctrine, right? But in any case, it's a way of uh, teasing apart the components of the human experience and, interestingly, pointing out the ways in which those components naturally lead to um, uh, resistance of impermanence, to clinging to, to pleasurable experience, to averting from unpleasant experience, and... And all the whole kind of panoply and drama of um, of human suffering, right? Um, the, and so, so, and so that, that was the that was this school called the I think they're called the Srivastavadi school, right? They were they they were they did a lot of writing, and and the analytical framework that they developed out of this scheme of the five scotties is very sophisticated and kind of good actually um and there were then there were other schools that disagreed um on some of the particulars but um one of the main features of the servastavadin school was that they had a conviction that this stuff that they were talking about was reality right it was it was the truth right uh, and and it was and they it was almost a kind of scientific or you know, scientistic um set of ideas around its truth value right in, in other words this was the way things worked and um and your job as a Buddhist was to explore it both by thinking about it from a, in, a, in a sort of philosophical and analytical way, and also by experiencing it in, uh, in the realm of, uh, of you know, meditation and practice, right? And, and to refine it, to first of all, refine your understanding of it, and second of all, refine the, the model right so to to work on it right and that's what that's what these people were doing right and then there were other schools that had they took a very different approach and they were like no that <laughs> none of this stuff is real it's all just the mind playing with the mind right um, it's just it's like a dream right and there was a lot of debate and f- ferment and so on and so forth about this, and finally, the um, the standard story is that um, there was an effort by various people, including most famously and sort of definitively, this um, really smart guy by the name of Nagarjuna, who or Nagarjuna. Um, who, who developed this the what's known as the emptiness doctrine? That's really the the root doctrine of Mahayana Buddhism. Right? Um, and he he did it. He if you read the the text that he actually lays out this theory, and it's very very hard to read. Um, It's good, but it's very hard to read. And the reason it's hard to read is because he says, okay, you start with, the with this proposition that's part of really the kind of the earliest, um, uh, Buddhist doctrine that everything in the world arises together in this way. That's, that's mutually interdependent, right. Um, uh, it's. It's called things like dependent co-arising, or um, you know, or at least translated as as that. And so, so everything is entangled as it comes up together. Um, uh, and and if that's true, then then he says that you know these these. Very specific categories of experience. One of the things that um, must also be mutually interdependent. And so, actually, if you if you if you really dig through the, the the consequences of that that kind of interdependent co-arising, you realize that if you set a boundary in what you think of as reality, you define a category, you point to a thing um, from from one point of view that thing is is has a uh, kind of provisional reality right but from a from the point of view of 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 the of the reality of interdependence actually it's not a thing it's just it's part of it's a it's a temporary transient part of a complex process by which th- the everything is arising and coming into being right and and the the way this was expressed he used he he cleverly took this term uh shunya shunyata which means sort of emptiness or or yeah well it's emptiness is good it's usually translated as emptiness and he said these things that we that we think we recognize and understand are actually empty not in the sense that they don't exist but they're empty of of a separate essence or independent nature right they're they're just they're just different ways of looking at this ungraspably complex process of the arising of entangled reality Um, so so that was that. That was kind of how he resolved this argument about about the you know the on one side the servastivadins on the other side the schools that that kind of didn't acknowledge the existence of anything. There, there were so you have naive realists on one side and kind of solipsistic nihilists on the other side. And the way he resolved it is, they said he said you're both wrong, right? Um, there's there's something going on but what it is is it's 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 interdependent co-arising and the, the things that we think we see in that see in that see um, yeah, of interdependent co-arising are have a provisional existence in reality for it that that's that we perceive because it's convenient Convenient for us to perceive them that way, but they're not, they don't have any absolute reality. Um, And so that's the, that there is the, lurking in that is the doctrine of the truth, of the two truths, right? So the, so on one side, there's the, there's the sort of provisional conditional truth, right? Um, That can be got at by thinking and and so on right and and on the other side thinking remembering pattern matching right on the other side there's um there's you know the absolute or the you know ultimate truth which is fundamentally invisible and ungraspable right um but but you can sum it up by saying it's the it's the it's the process of interdependent co-arising co- of all being right um, hmm. and that's why for example, in the Heart Sutra, the probably the most commonly chanted document in the um, in the Mahayana Buddhist world, including the Zen school, but but lots of other Mahayana schools use the Heart Sutra for reasons that are pretty much purely historical. But nonetheless, um, if the Heart Sutra can say that. Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, was, was meditating one day and he realized the truth of the emptiness of all things, and in particular of this scheme that the Sravastabadans cooked up, the five skandhas, right? He says, it says, he realized that the five skandhas were were empty in, in the way that we're talking about. And and there, and thereby he relieved all suffering, right? That's or was you could say relieved all suffering or was relieved from suffering. Um, his his suffering, maybe the suffering of all beings, was relieved by this realization of Avalokiteshvara, and and Avalokiteshvara explains to Shariputra. He says, "Look, all these these." Categories of experience are empty, and the, the categories whereby we classify the components of those experiences are also empty. That is, they don't really exist, right? And and so he says these outrageous things in the Heart Sutra. He says, "There's no, you have no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, right? There's no such thing as sight, sound, smell, taste, um, touch, and and there are no objects of mind, right?" Um, um, and, and you think, wow, really, <laughs> right? Um, but, but the reason why in, in the, in this philosophical scheme, um, that's okay is because, um, is because you can say eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind have 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 the flavor of conditioned or um, relative truth right um, and but from the from the point of view of the absolute they're not they're they're empty of independent self nature right? um, great um, so that's the, the philosophy part right and I guess the the last thing I'd say about the philosophy part is that there's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the in the, in the philosophical discussion of this stuff about how how those as I was saying before about how those components of of experience um, lead to lead directly to suffering right lead directly to the difficulties that we humans have and cause each other, and cause really. Let's be clear: the whole world, um, um, because of because of how they are and how they're put together, right? And that's that's one of the one of the kind of striking features of this whole discussion um, is that not only not only in India, but 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 in. Um, it, in in ancient Greece and probably all over the philosophical world at the time where people were doing philosophy, there was this idea. Like if you read Aristotle, he says to perceive is to suffer. Right? Amazing. Right. Um, to, and and similarly in the in the um, in the s- scheme of the five scones. Right. So you have the world of form, which it, which is not inherently. Um, a, a inherently a, a source of suffering, or not, right? But but form gives rise the world of form gives rise to sensation, and that sensation already has a valence of pleasant or unpleasant depending on its characteristics, right? So you know if if the if the sensation that arises is an excruciating pain in your right knee, um, then that that has an unpleasant valence, right? Um, if if the uh, you know if the if the sensation that arises is the you know purring of the cat then then we interpret it as pleasant you know and so do other cats right um, so and then then the the, the so the, the good news is, <laughs> I don't know if it's the good news or not, but <laughs> the basic setup is that the vast majority of sensations that we experience never rise to the level of perception. Right? They, they just, if you like, and, and that's why I was talking a little bit during uh, zazen about the, about the two kinds of attention that can arise in zazen. There's this broad receptive attention you really subtle, and allow your body to um, both to to become a sensory, um, sort of array, right? And also to to itself telegraph this incredible flood of sensory information about the, really the state and position of every single, you know, cubic millimeter of your body, right, to, to your mind, right? Um, you're that's that's going on constantly right but what usually happens is that we pick a sensation or at most kind of a little cloud of sensations and attend to them and and allow them to arise into our consciousness as perception right and then usually pass away right? Because if there's nothing really interesting going on there, um, the, that sensation just fades out like a, a blip and is no longer part of your perceptual, um, uh, you know, um, stream, right? Um, but, you know, regularly sensations arise that have, have some, uh, some powerful valence or are surprising in some way or alerting in some way and and then all the whole the whole heart you know like piece of hardware kicks into gear and starts generating essentially what boils down to a kind of dramatic narrative of our life right um, and um, in that dramatic narrative there's, those valences, pleasant or unpleasant, um, there's also sometimes things that are neutral, but I think it's not a lot of stuff that we perceive that's neutral, right? But in any case, uh, those valences translate into uh, urgency or, or, um, you know, emotions that 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 are prompted by the either pleasantness or unpleasantness of the sensation and and so on and so forth and then we're in the territory of of um entanglement right? it's like i like this i don't like this i i want more of that and we'll pursue it i want less of that and we'll avert from it i am i I am. I have inflated a bubble of happiness. Uh, that bubble of happiness has been has been deflated, right? and and so on. Right. All of the the components of a life of a human life that that are the that are the basic components of suffering is as described in the entire Buddhist canon. Right? Um, so so. They're both saying, you know, once you're perceiving, you're suffering. <laughs> um, both, the, both, the, both the ancient Greeks and the the ancient uh, Buddhist philosophers agreed completely on the, the the point that once you're once you're taking it in, you're suffering. Right? Um, and and it's built in. Right. It's kind of it's kind of part of, 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 It's it's part of how we're built. It's it's in particular it's a part of how the 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 human in us is built. So what are the components of this this kind of drama? Right. There's the there's our um. The, there's the kind of cataloging and categorizing that. That arises out of our linguistic ability. There's the pattern matching that comes from our really sort of, you know, sort of remarkable memory, right? There's our 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 both our our way of our our kind of episodic memory and our, our ability to use that episodic memory to imagine future consequences and all the rest of that stuff. That's really it's an integral part of our humanity, right? And it's and it's what makes a human experience. If we didn't have that stuff, we wouldn't experience being human, right? Um, we'd experience something else, and you know maybe it would be awesome, but it wouldn't be this, right? Um, and so so we're kind of in some ways we're kind of stuck with it, right? And that that's the conclusion that that's drawn by. Well, lots of people in the ancient world that were talking about this, and and nonetheless, the Buddha said, okay, um, in you know, some six hundred years before this whole debate about the two truths, right, uh, said that there's there's freedom from suffering, right. Um, so if so, if it's true that that this capacity, this talent for suffering is built into our bodies and minds, then what does it mean to be free of it? Right. Um, and there's been a couple of views expressed of that in the course of the history of Buddhism. I think the 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 first the first part is all the Buddhist schools hold up various forms of skillful means whereby we can work with the this specific activity, right? The, the activity of mind that, that, that turns sensations into, into mental activity that causes clinging and um, aversion and, uh, you know, pursuit and disappointment and, and all the rest of that sort of thing, right? And I, the part I haven't talked about yet is the way in which all this stuff plays out in a social context, which is, of course, the most important context that humans inhabit right so all of this this stuff that we're talking about as a kind of social um dimension right um all of it is all of it is more made more acute when you're when you're working in a social framework and that social framework is is In some ways, crucial for your success and survival. Right. So, in any case, the 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 you know Buddhists have have developed suites of skillful means whereby you can work with your humanity and and become more and more skillful with with conducting yourself in a way that that. That relieve suffering for yourself and for others, right? Um, so that's um, that. And the most basic, um, the most basic framework around that is the precepts, the Buddhist precepts, right? So you you don't commit the the obvious heinous acts, and then the, the last five precepts in the in the Zen scheme um, are all about the the subtleties and dynamics of social interaction. Right. Um, so, that's um, that's one set of things that you can do to address our predilection for suffering. Right. Um, and then the the other one is a little bit more um, more slippery. Right. So, and the, in early Buddhism, in the Pali Canon, and also in Vajrayana Buddhism, there's this there's this idea of Nirvana, where essentially by by engaging in these skillful practices diligently for well in in the in the early Buddhist scheme, it was often Lifetime after lifetime, right? Um, it was possible possible to settle and purify your engagement to the with the world and your your sort of karmic life to the point where at, at some point you just drop out of the game, right? You're you're no longer animated by those mental forces that cause suffering, right? Um, and, and at that point, at that point, when you die, and this is the fruition of this whole process is, is when you die for this last time, um, you're not reborn. and instead your your essence, whatever it is, um, uh, just becomes a, a part of everything, right And that's it. And so, and you're and you you know one less one less suffering soul basically. Right? Um, interestingly, the the Mahayana school and the Zen school in particular, that idea doesn't have as much currency, right? the 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 idea of, of awakening is still this powerful idea, but but if you read carefully what um, the ancients say about awakening the most the kind of the most obvious um example of this there's this great con the the hermit of lotus flower peak right so the hermit of lotus flower peak I, I know i've talked about this one before but he stands up on a mountain holds up his staff and he says hey this you know this staff represents kind of the the teachings right and he says when the when the ancients got here which is to say when they when they woke up and they realized the teachings right um they when they're when the teachings became just an integral part of their body and mind through awakening why couldn't they stay and and because nobody can answer the question he says it's because fundamentally it's loosely translated he says because they didn't get anything out of it they didn't gain anything from it right um it wasn't a thing that you could gain right um and And then he said, "So how? So now, how is it after you wake up? How is it?" And and still nobody can answer. So he says, "I I put the teachings, I put my staff over my shoulders, I carry them with me, and I go into the myriad peaks, which is to say, the myriad moments of everyday life. That's kind of so. In some ways, that's the Mahayana and particularly the Zen view, right? Like." Awakening is more of a practice, and the moments in which we're awake depend largely on on our moment-to-moment engagement with exactly the processes that we were just talking about. In other words, how how do you meet the fact that you that you're that that you and everybody you know are suffering in this specific way that arises out of our humanity and the way our humanity collides with an impermanent, conditioned realm. Right? How can you? Where? How do you meet the fact that 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 we operate largely in the in the condition in, in the realm of conditioned uh, existence and provisional reality. Right. Um, where it's and that's where we perceive things. That's where we, that's where we remember them. That's where we um, respond to them. Right. Um, so I guess I'm I'm tempted to ask a question. Um, how do you deal with that? Any uh, any um, any ideas about that? You can unmute yourself if you want. <laughs> well, then I'll I'll, uh, I'll go on. Right. So the the one of the big features of the of the Zen school as a as a kind of I mean the Zen school had had a very different literary history from the from the, the the sort of academic period in Buddhism or the the period in which the Pali Canon was written, um, people mostly wrote poems, these sort of elliptical, strange, slippery surrealistic poems, or they collected these kind of, you know, complicated, difficult to understand stories about the interactions between teachers and students, right? That was kind of what they that's was kind of how they put together their literature. And if you if you read this literature, one of the things you realize is that it's constantly pointing at the relationship between between again the relative and the absolute between the the relative condition truth and this other truth of emptiness or um, or, yeah, emptiness and condition and, and dependent co-arising, interdependent co-arising. Right? And, you know, let's be clear, humans can't see or grasp ultimate reality, right? Um, they just don't, right? We're, we're born with these, these, senses that listen to particular frequency ranges and kinds of things and we have a mental capacity that's that's you know pretty decent but um it's mainly focused on on talking and getting around in the world without bumping into things right and not really suited to um to understanding in detail ultimate reality why would we why would we even need that right it's like you'd get up in the morning, you get yourself a cup of coffee. Like a hundred years later, you'd be like, "Well, I'm part way through understanding ultimate reality." <laughs> but by that time, it would be all different anyway. So there's there's really nothing you can do about it, right? But but what has been observed over the course of millennia of studying this relationship is that we that there are these two modes of being, at least two modes of being in our bodies and minds, that one of which is a lot less loaded, categorical, and conditioned than the other, right? So the, the, the stuff I was talking about earlier, the human stuff, right? Um, well, that's not even really fair. The, the the human stuff is has a has a particular flavor that's or and and it's it's been designed by evolution to uh, last you know get around in the world without bumping into things to to interact to remember and all the rest of that sort of stuff the other mode it, it's not as preoccupied with with those things right it's mostly just it just takes in the world in a way that's less loaded and um yeah kind of receptive and non-judgmental and so on right it's a little closer to the unconditional and and those two things are constantly operating in everybody's mind. It, it, um, they, the reason we don't recognize that that's true is because the the our our conditioned mind, the um, the mind of of dramatic self narration and so on, is so uh, is such a preoccupation. Right? But actually, they're both going all the time, and the and the the idea of awakening and how it's helpful in the Zen school is that it's possible through one continuous practice and two, just random chance. Right. And three people helping each other out, pointing each other in the direction of awakening to, to, to start recognizing the way in which that other mode of being is always with you. Right. And, 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 provides a kind of counterweight and, and, and even kind of um, field in which that, that other mode of mental activity, our conditioned mind, our dramatic self-narration, can, can operate pretty seamlessly but without being quite so problematic. And that's the that's kind of the um, when when you read the way people talk about those two things in the Zen school, you start to see that one they're they're both constantly present, and two they're constantly entangled with each other. Right? What where does the sensation come from? That causes perception and a a cascade of activity that leads to suffering. Well, it comes from your broad receptive attention, right? Where does uh, where do the ideas that allow us to understand the interactions between those two modes of being uh, reside? They reside in our in our conditioned mind, right? So there's a there's this connection and entanglement between them. That's um, that's fundamentally inextricable, right? They're just they're just connected with each other. So again, we're still stuck with um, our suffering, and and we might as well celebrate it actually, because it's 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 the thing that makes us the most human. But at the same time, relief is available, and the relief is available. In, in by waking up to the broader picture of what it is to be here basically. Um, so that was, that went on for a really long time. Um, I, I, does anybody have a question or two about that and then we should do announcements? What do you think?
1: I have a quick question. Yes, please. My name is Mireya, pronounce she, her. So I don't know if this is too esoteric, (laughs) but how I'm curious to hear, how would you define intuition? Because I was thinking intuition is purely a construction of the mind, of course, but then because everything is intertwined and there's this, you know, interconnection, it's like, well, it's a consequence of the connection, but it will still be a perception of the mind. So I just, i'm curious to hear your thoughts
0: oh well, no so that's a really that's a really great really great point you know like the, the 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 mode of operation that's held up in the in the heart sutra as the as the way of reconciling emptiness and emptiness and form right uh, you know so the the heart sutra after after totally trashing the whole conceptual framework that buddhism is based on says okay so what do you do you rely on on uh, the term is prajnaparamita which f- fundamentally means wisdom beyond wisdom or maybe wisdom beyond knowledge right and in and when people talk about prajnaparamita they often talk about it as a kind of intuitive sense that's that's that applies to be the um the the activity that's alive the activity and forces that are alive in the moment and that's that's how you navigate with um in the in the in the world where everything it where everything is empty and where um you don't have to be certain about anything you you you, you take in what's going on in this the this intuitive wisdom just informs your response and then then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again right i mean so so that's kind of what i'd say about it is that that the it's it's the you know, paramita. this intuitive wisdom is a kind of, um, wisdom that's held lightly and f- that's free from, you know, prejudgment and, and powerful expectation, but still a, a, allows some kind of, um, some kind of response, right? Some kind of, and some kind of, um, understanding, right? So, um, and, I mean, and my, the, my, Sort of embodied experience of that is that it kind of just bubbles up out of your body like a spring, basically, um, and and then then you know you do you do what you do, and sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong, and then the spring bubbles something else up, right? Sort of something like that. Does that help? I'm that's kind of um, kind of slippery, but uh, any more questions about that? Because it's a really great point, right? So wh- tell me. Good, okay, thanks. Anyone else? Go ahead, Risa. Hi, Zachary. Hi. Hi. Hmm. Um, you said there's like, you know, two ways of kind of being, um, and one is kind of like this human condition and how they're kind of intertwined. Yes. Is it possible? Is it possible to live more in the other, the uh, the non-human condition? One. Well, is here's what possible- I, here's what I'd say about that. So th- this is th- th- this is the way in which my thinking on this has shifted, and uh, my my understanding of this has shifted in the last year or two. I've been I've been working my ass off to try and figure out how to calm my mind down for 28 years right and and i finally i finally come to the conclusion that that's not going to happen for me it may happen for some people right but 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 instead what happens is this that other mode of being becomes more and more present just through practice just through regular practice with it right becomes more and more present and provides a a kind of broader picture and an and a kind of unloaded approach even to me to the the kind of noisy conditioned dramatic narrative that's that's kind of constantly spinning out there and and provides a counterweight so yes it's it's but it's not like you live more in one than the other. It's like you live more in both. Does that make sense? Um, Something like that. And then your mind doesn't really have to calm down. It can be whatever it wants. When it's calm, it can be calm. When it's uh, heated, it can be heated, but it doesn't have to be definitive. It doesn't define. it, It doesn't define your experience, right? Something like that. You know, Unfortunately, we should probably go. Um, Does any, who is doing announcements?
1: Me, Mireya.
0: Great, (laughs) go for it. Yeah,
1: yes. So hello everyone. So I'm Mireya, as I said, my pronouns are she, her. Um, So as you know, San Francisco Center relies on on your generosity uh, to continue offering Dharma events, including yes. So the center is currently closed due to COVID-19 and has lost much of its, of its income resources. So please consider making a donat- donation if you're able. Um, the information is on the chat. The uh, memo is Young Arvan senator And the, the suggested donation is um, $10. If you know a friend or a family member who will be interested in joining the Just Google group, Um, There is a form also in the chat, and I will post the information again, uh, if anyone joined it after we started. Um, But if you join or a friend joined, signups, you will receive emails from jazz leaders um, like Kodo and information about the um, upcoming events and talks. Um, You are welcome to use the Google group to post your own announcements about Dharma events and any activities that might help the group uh, deepen their practice. The only non-Dharma-related topics that you are welcome to share um, in the alias are housing posts, either requests for housing or available housing in the Bay Area. Um, And I don't know if there are any announcements from the community. If not, I'm going to pass it back to you, Sakari. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks everyone for, uh, for coming and for sitting through the um, through the the mysterious uh, beginning of the meeting. But it's I'm really I'm really glad you're here and and thanks so much for listening. Um, and uh, have a lovely night. Thanks. Thanks so much, Zach. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, really. Thanks, Zach.